Um, we're going to do what we do each Sunday now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 19, we're going to begin at verse 13 today. Matthew 19, verse 13. And when you found that, if you're able, if you'd stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew writes this, Then children were brought to him, this is Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? This guy, eh? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect. Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray for us quickly and we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word? Accomplish the good purpose in each one of us for which you've sent it out. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, you've had this experience uh, at least once in your life before, if not multiple times, where you are coming in either like asking a question, making a request of someone, only to have them, you know, barely look up at you and respond by saying, you want to try that again? You want to try again? Which is very simply them just telling you, either because of generally your disrespectful tone, the presumption of your question, they're letting you know, hey, you can continue with that approach if you want to, but you're almost guaranteed not to receive whatever it is you're asking for if you do. So, I mean, please, go ahead. Uh, has anyone else had this experience? I, I unfortunately have had it many times. I apparently am quite tone deaf when it comes to how I ask questions, which means like if you find yourself in that scenario yourself, bottom line, if, if you truly need whatever it is you're asking for, it doesn't really matter like how genuine your desire, how nice you think you sounded when you asked. You're going to need to find a different approach than the one you're currently taking if you want to have any hope of reaching your heart's desire. And I bring it up as we continue here this morning in our teaching series through Matthew's Gospel entitled Kingdom Come because of something unique, something uh, different, new to me anyway, that I saw as I was studying the passage this past week, something really important about how we approach Jesus, how it is that we approach Jesus that's revealed when you look at the broader context 
of this passage about the rich young ruler. And I know I talk a lot about context and how important that is uh, whenever we're trying to understand any passage of Scripture, but I think I was just surprised again this past week to see that, oh, that's really true. It does matter. Um, because most of us, I mean, if you grew up in church, if you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, whatever it is, you've, you've very likely heard teaching on this passage before. You've heard stories, messages about the rich young ruler, either from this passage or parallel accounts in Mark's or Luke's gospel. We, we, we've heard this before, but when you widen the context and begin in verse 13, as we did this morning, instead of verse 16, so we broaden the context of what we're seeing, suddenly, all of a sudden, you find Jesus presenting two different contrasting approaches to him. Namely, you've got the approach of a child and the approach of a ruler. These two things, the approach of a child contrasting with the approach of the ruler, which I think when you see it, when you understand how those two things contrast each other, suddenly you, I think it helps, it's super helpful for anyone else here who, like the rich young ruler, find yourself saying, okay, I know God, I'm seeking God, I'm trying to go through all the steps to, to know him more and, and be a follower of his, but I still feel like there's a sense of lack. I feel like I'm still missing something. Have you ever felt like that before? I have. I felt that way all the time. What, what am I still missing? There's something not right here. But when you look at this broader context, it helps you to see that when you're focusing just on the passage that talks about the rich young ruler, verses 16 through 26, all you're ultimately being shown is what not to do, how, how not to approach Jesus, which is helpful. I mean, we need to know that. But when you look at this different contrasting approach, where Jesus actually starts, I think, in verse 13, what you're given as well is an approach to Jesus that, look, Jesus himself says, grants you access to the kingdom, eternal life in him every single time. So, yeah, sign me up for that. Tell me more about that approach, because I want to know how I can, I can experience that too. So, yes, we'll, we'll look at the approach of the ruler. I'm not going to leave anyone who's never heard a message on this passage before hanging. But at the same time, I want to I look at what Jesus shows us about the approach of a child as well, because as Jesus says in verse 14, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, those who approach him in that way. So let's look at this. If you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, could you open them again to that passage? Matthew 19, verse, starting with verse 13, not 16. Follow along with me as we learn what it looks like to approach Jesus in a different way that's natural for most of us. And it sounds like it was different than how the disciples felt we should approach Jesus as well, a way that truly grants us our heart's desire and avoids any one of us going away sorrowful from Jesus and probably then having some much more harder questions to answer as well. Okay, so let's look first of all at the approach of the ruler. Let's cover him because it's important. So if you look at verse 16 with me there, Matthew tells us about a man who comes up to Jesus Jesus, as you remember, we looked at last week, he has left Galilee and is now making his way towards Jerusalem where he will complete the purpose for which he came to give his life for the sins of the world. But a man comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, all three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include this story. They all mention that this man is rich. If you look at verse 20, Matthew tells us this man was young, and Luke tells us that he was a ruler, uh, so possibly even uh, a, a Pharisee like the Apostle Paul was before, given the fact of his passionate commitment to obedience to the law. 
But as you listen to the question he asked Jesus, you're already kind of given a sense of the lack that he expresses later in verse 20. He feels like he's probably done enough to earn eternal life in the kingdom, as one commentator put it, but he's not sure that he has. I've probably done enough, but I'm not sure. And so in coming to Jesus, it's almost as if he's saying, I feel like I've done everything necessary to have eternal life. Which, by the way, eternal life is synonymous with Jesus' teaching on entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I feel like I've done everything necessary, but I've got this nagging sense there's something that's still missing, something I still have to do. Can you tell me what it is, Jesus? Give me the, like, what's the good deed I need to do that's going to give me that last push over the line so that I can be certain I have access into the kingdom? Which is a fair question, given his metric of how eternal life is gained, and it makes sense that he'd come to Jesus, because Jesus was apparently the authority on kingdom of heaven and how you get there. But as you see from verse 17 now, before even beginning to answer this man's question, Jesus asked this man a question about his question. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So the only one who is good. Jesus is making a direct reference to God the Father. And, and in questioning the question, what he's done in that simple statement is he's actually undone this man's standard of goodness entirely with his question. Once again, I mean, we've seen this every week. Jesus is saying to him, your question is wrong because your starting point is wrong. Why? Don't start by asking what is good. Don't start by asking what is good enough. Start by asking who is good because then you'll get what the standard actually is. And then following up his standard shattering comment with, a, with what at first must have seemed kind of a disappointing response from Jesus there at the end of verse 17. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. And, and yeah, sure, the man's response to Jesus sounds cheeky at first. He's kind of like, well, which ones? I mean, that sounds like he's got some attitude. But uh, if you look, you can see from his exasperated response in verse 20 to Jesus' listing of the commandments he's supposed to keep in verses 18 and 19, it, it, it seems like he's feeling despair more than frustration because he's like, what do you, what do you mean keep the commandments? That's what, I, that's what I've been doing. I've already been doing that. And yeah, there's kind of an unquestioned kind of hubris and naivety in his self-attesting uh, kind of like, all these I have kept. I've done it. Yep, check. I've done that. But what you can also see in the man's pleading question, what do I still lack, is a genuine desire to understand, like, why do I still feel like this? Please, there's got to be something more I can do. What is it? Please, tell me. And now, it's now. Almost as if Jesus knew that he wouldn't even be able to hear the answer to his question until he got to this level of desperation. Jesus then does answer his question. Verse 21, look with me there. Jesus says, if you would be perfect, that is, if you would be complete, whole in your obedience to God and gain your heart's desire, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now, we know how the man responds to Jesus' answer, either because, again, you've heard teaching on this before, because we just read it. He goes away sorrowful. But in wanting to help you and me avoid taking this same approach to Jesus ourselves, going away sorrowful ourselves, I want to talk for just a minute both about why he went away sorrowful as well as why Jesus' disciples were so shocked that he'd walked away as well. And I'm going to try to move quickly through this uh, and the reasons of why, because I also want to give adequate time to the approach of a child. But as you see plainly, look at verse 22. The first and most obvious reason the man walked away sorrowful is because, as Matthew tells us, he had great possessions. 
by which I think Matthew means he had a lot of possessions, not that he had great stuff. But this is actually super important here to just pause and press into this a little bit more because whenever anyone hears a message about the rich young ruler, what you invariably hear people coming away with is at least one of two conclusions. Either people walk away convinced, okay, so this is pretty clear, money, evil. Money's evil. It just chokes out life in God. We just need to, if you really want to be a true follower of Jesus, we just need to be poor like Jesus was. That's conclusion number one. We're convinced of that. Or two, people walk away terrified. You mean if I want to follow Jesus, i got to sell all my stuff? And, and no, because <laughs> both those conclusions actually miss the point entirely. How so? Well, because I believe what we're being shown in this story of the rich young ruler is not a general command for every follower of Jesus that we're supposed to pursue a life of poverty and asceticism if we want to be citizens in the kingdom. It's not. That, that's not what this is. What we're witnessing here instead, I believe, is very much the same situation like we would see in Genesis 22, when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, take your son, your son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Or when Jesus comes to the woman at the well in John 4, go call your husband. He, he's, he's a master at like pointing to what the thing is that's really choking out life in God. So that's what we're witnessing here. We're witnessing Jesus, the great physician, looking into the very heart and soul of this man, down to the core of his identity and his, his existence, pointing to the one thing that's robbing him of life, the thing that's keeping him from crossing that line, really the thing competing for supremacy in his heart. And he's saying, if you would truly enter life, if you would truly have treasure in heaven, if you want to be sure of your welcome in the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to need you to lay that thing down and give it to me. And hear me, he's not saying this because Jesus is some kind of narcissistic glory hog that needs everything to be about him. He's saying that because he knows life is found nowhere else but in him. In fact, if you read Mark's account of this same story, he notes that when the man asked Jesus, what do I still lack? Mark tells us Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. And he said, if you would be perfect, sell all that you have and come follow me. He looked at him and he loved him. Do you see it now? Do you, do you see the heart of Jesus behind his command to lay down what had truly taken over supremacy in this man's life? This isn't vindictive stripping away. This is life-saving heart surgery, really. And along with that, do you see how this same principle then applies to you and to me in our own approach to Jesus, how, how we avoid walking away sorrowful from him as well? Because again, one of the false conclusions people have when they come to this passage is fear and panic. Man, I gotta sell all my stuff to follow Jesus? And I always want to say, no, no, that, that's not what this passage is teaching. You know, this is not some sort of sell all your possessions, live a life of poverty if you want to follow Jesus. This is God's specific command for this man in particular. And yet I think I'd be entirely grossly negligent if I didn't immediately follow up that comment by saying, but it could be God's call for your life. Could be. Robert Gundry famously once said, hearing that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people whom he would give that command. Why? Why? Because Jesus is mean-spirited and vindictive. He wants to take away all of our other good things so that we'll see him as great? No. No, because he sees, he sees the real heart treasures that we're all oh so good at hiding from everyone else. And actually, many times that we don't even see ourselves. We don't know that they're the treasures in our hearts. 
That is until Jesus points directly at them and says, I'm going to, lead, I'm going to need you to lay that thing down and give it to me. Oh, then all of a sudden we know how, how deeply rooted that treasure is in our heart. And we're then confronted with the same question that the rich young ruler had to face of whose treasure it is that we find more valuable. Because that's the thing you need to see above all, whether it's monetary wealth or any of the many other myriad of kinds of riches and treasures that we hold on to, uh, beauty, status, intelligence, fame, family, on and on and on. Like so many times people, we, we read this passage and we feel like we're off the hook because we're not wealthy. We're just like, sweet, this isn't about me. And it's like, no. When Jesus says how hard it is, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, insert whatever you think of as riches, whatever treasure it is, how hard it is for people trying to share supremacy with God in their hearts to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. Riches can mean all kinds of different things. But when Jesus tells us to lay those things down, give it to him, it's not, he's not just saying, okay, give me that stuff and then we're good. He, he, he does give us things in return. Look, the, the treasure in heaven that Jesus offered this young man made his great possessions look like poverty in comparison. The only reason he went away sorrowful is because he couldn't see how much more valuable what Jesus was offering him truly was. And the same is true for you and me. Whenever, what, when, when whatever it is that I'm truly treasuring above all is exposed and I'm confronted with, with needing to make the very same kind of evaluation as the rich young really had to make. Whose treasure do I value more? And for this man, in valuing his present, tangible, momentary wealth over eternal riches, the ruler went away sorrowful and sadly, I think, still feeling like he'd made the right decision. He went away sorrowful, but he's like, but I mean, obviously I can't, I can't follow through with that. Which to me, honestly, that's the, that's the part of this story that terrifies me way more than imagining what if Jesus told me to sell all my stuff and give it to the poor? It's this, that I could be so blind to seeing the infinitely superior value of what Jesus is offering me that I'd pass on eternal, unfading riches in for, just for momentary joy and gladness in whatever little possessions I have right now, my little pile of stuff, that I trade all that he's offering just for this. It's like in a cosmic sense, you're being like that guy from The Price is Right who passes on the mystery envelope because he doesn't want to lose what he's already won. And it's like, wow, congratulations, bro. You got your toaster. You missed out on the car and the trip to Hawaii. <laughs> like, great job. I mean, C.S. Lewis, we've heard this before, but he says it so well. It would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Okay, so that's the approach of the ruler, an approach as I see it that brings about a devastating result that doesn't have to be. If only we could be honest about what our hearts truly are treasuring and be given the eyes to see the infinitely superior value of what it is that Jesus is offering us. The last thing I want to look at together with you is what, in context, I believe Jesus presents as a different approach to him, an approach that Jesus says will truly grant us our heart's desire and avoid any one of us from going away sorrowful, and that's the approach of a child. 
And where you see this approach is immediately above the part of our passage which outlines this story of the rich young ruler in verses 13 and 15. Look with me there. Matthew says, Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. And then he went away. Now, now this is a passage that shows up in virtually every children's Bible, and rightfully so. Uh, many of you are probably thinking of clappy songs that go along with this passage that you did in summer camp, uh, and rightfully so. I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful, and, and it shows us, it highlights the kind of access that children had to Jesus despite his celebrity, like he, children had access to them, as well as the way he truly valued children, like that in itself is there's a message right there uh, for us. But as it relates to approaching Jesus, what's important to note about this particular teaching as well as what Jesus says in the second half of verse 14, when he says, For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Which rather than teaching some kind of doctrine that children are just de facto citizens of the kingdom until some point when they no longer are, I believe is a summary of the teaching that we saw just a chapter earlier in Matthew 18, a passage Pastor Dave preached on a few weeks ago. If you turn back with me there, if you still have your Bible open, or it'll be up on the screen. Matthew writes this, that at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So hopefully now you're beginning to see much more of what I meant back in our passage here, chapter 19, when I talk about this contrasting approach from the one of the rich young ruler to this approach of a child. There's a, there's a turning from something. We'll talk a bit more about what that is in a, min- in a minute here. You're turning from something, and it requires humility in order to be able to accomplish that turning. That, that's the, the different approach of a child. And by way of contrast, I think when you look at these two things side by side, we see what it is we need to turn from in order to approach Jesus like this, not in a childish but childlike way. For if you just consider the approach of the ruler, when he comes to Jesus, he comes with what? He's got wealth, he's got status and position, probably dressed in really nice clothes, and apparently he's coming with this perfect moral record. Okay, that's what he brings to Jesus. Whereas the children being brought to Jesus in verse 13, what would they have come with? No, no wealth of their own, right? Certainly no uh, status or position, particularly in that culture. They would have had, I don't know, whatever food-stained shirt they managed to pull out of the pile of clothes that they put on that morning. And absolutely, the, when it comes to like obedience, like even just to their parents, let alone the law of God, they would have come far from perfect in their obedience, but actually not all that concerned in trying to like pretend otherwise. That's like a stark contrast between those two approaches, right? And yet look, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these children. Not that they're owners of the kingdom, but that those who humble themselves and approach, them, approach Jesus like a child, they have the assurance of eternal life. They have assurance of entrance into the kingdom of heaven that that rich young ruler so desperately wanted. They have it. It's actually almost the exact same thing you see in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two people coming. You, you think you can see which way it's going because one has all the position and obedience and law, and this other one, he's a tax collector, and yet Jesus says, no, the one who approaches me like that, humbly, 
with nothing in their hands to offer. That's the one who goes away justified. You see this again and again with Jesus. He turns the expectation of how access is granted to him all on its head. Tim Keller, he put it so perfectly when he talked about the approach of the rich young ruler. He came with two wrong assumptions. First of all, that Christianity is something you can add to your life, something that you use to kind of top up your otherwise worthy existence and kind of get you over the line to being a citizen of the kingdom, or that Christianity is something you can do. Remember his question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's why Jesus sought to bring this man's entire understanding of goodness and turn it entirely on its head. Because if he truly understands the goodness of God, he'd have known there's, there's nothing you can do. There's not enough good stuff you could ever do in order to be uh, welcomed into my kingdom. Not to mention, hey, sorry, for all your law obedience, like we saw Jesus listed commandments, but if you know the Ten Commandments, he only listed a couple. And Jesus was very intentional in the commands he listed because he's like, let's talk about the first commandment. How are you doing on that one? You shall have no other gods before me. How's that going? Or the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How's that going? He hadn't kept the law at all. Whereas, look, the approach of a child to Jesus carries with it no other assumption or presumption than in the goodness and safety and embrace of the one to whom they're coming. That's the only presumption they bring, just that Jesus is good. And he's welcoming me. When you think about what that means for your life and mine today, I hope you can see already both how drastically different this approach to Jesus is from the one that most of us feel like, or we tend to like by default approach him with, or maybe because of bad teaching, we feel like we got to bring all this other stuff. And just how freeing it is to know that this is the way that we have access to Jesus. Because now, instead of kind, kind of trying to come to Jesus with all of our like, uh, a cleaned up, photoshopped view of ourselves that we're presenting to everyone else. I got this all together. Look how well I'm following God. As well as your best efforts at moral perfection, if you even have that, in order to try to barter acceptance with God, you see now, and hopefully come to learn through continued experience in coming, that you can actually lay all that stuff down. Just like lay it down and leave it and just simply approach Jesus with the faith of a child presuming in nothing else but the goodness of the one to whom you are coming and trusting, as Jesus says, the one who, who approaches me like this, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, truly belongs to them. And yet I realize even in saying that, that almost none of us here today really believe that, myself included. We, we know that theologically to be true, but we don't really believe it in practice. As you keep reading, we see that clearly Jesus' disciples didn't believe it was that simple either. Because look, the, the parents trying to bring these children to Jesus, they get rebuked. Oh, you, you, you don't have access. You can't come. But do you hear anything about them rebuking the rich young ruler coming to Jesus? No. Why don't they try to stop him from coming? Well, because as Keller again puts it so well, he says, back then as well as now, there's a kind of unconscious and sometimes conscious feeling that if you do good, you'll be wealthy. That is, wealth is a sign of God's blessing. And if you're wealthy, it's because you've done good. That was absolutely the cultural assumption of Jesus' day and to a large degree of our day as well. What grants you access to the kingdom is effort, is striving, is being good enough, and thus being wealthy. That was a sign you'd done those things exceptionally well. Clearly, you had God's blessing on your life because you followed so well. How in the world could a child 
ever accomplish any of those things and have access. That's how everyone thought and how most of us think today as well. Which is the reason Keller goes on to add, he says, here's the kind of guy that by modern standards, everybody would say, this is about as together a person as a person can be. He's even willing to admit he has spiritual need. He comes and asks a perfectly legitimate question. What do I still lack? There's still something missing in my life spiritual. And yet, look, in response, Jesus gives him an outrageous, strong answer and sends him away packing, showing that he's actually totally outside of the kingdom of God. Leading Jesus' disciples then, and likely probably us as well, look at verse 25, to respond with shocked amazement. Who then can be saved? If this guy's out, who's in? Who in the world does have access if this guy doesn't? Which is kind of a hilarious question in one sense because it seems like, if you remember from last week, the disciples are always leaping to these really outrageous like extremes every time Jesus unpacks kingdom realities. Like, what? A man can't divorce his wife for any and every reason? No one should be married then. Like, what? Uh, uh, A Pharisee with a perfect moral record, obvious blessing on his life isn't saved? Then no one can be saved. Like, they seem to kind of just leap to extremes. And yet Jesus, once again, seems to respond in the affirmative. He says, you're right. In effect, there in verse 26, yes, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. By which I think he simply means, you're right. Seeking to reach the kingdom by means of human effort, that is impossible. You can never be good enough. But in coming to God like a child and resting in my effort on your behalf, you'll find both the embrace of God as well as the humility to see that the treasure I offer is infinitely better than any earthly treasure that's currently hindering your life in God. And that's certainly been my experience over the years. I, I don't claim to like do this perfectly. I still 100% struggle with this myself, but I've seen like a real-life example of it in my life. For If I can just share personally with you in closing here. Although I grew up in a Christian family, um, presented in in many contexts as a good Christian kid. I learned all the ways to follow the rules, memorize the verses, be at youth group, be at church, uh, speak in the right way and not in the wrong way. All those things. For much of my adolescent and young adult life, I I was a completely duplicitous person. I I lived the good life in certain contexts and not in others. In other contexts, you would have had no idea I was a follower of Jesus. And yet when God finally got a hold of my life, actually much later in life, called me to himself, what he exposed, (laughs) the thing that he pointed to in my own life that was hindering my life in him, the the treasure that I clung to most in my life was the applause and high opinion of others. That was my, these are my riches right here. And And I sought those riches and I got them and I hoarded them. And I loved him, any chance I could get. I'd love to tell you that when Jesus pointed at that riches in my life and said, I need you to lay that thing down, that I just submitted to God's call and walked into life and obedience in him, the opposite is true. I clung to it even more tightly. I just, I needed it. And in his mercy, God allowed me to, through various circumstances and in many ways, lose the high opinion of other people almost entirely. And yet, in that place of brokenness, humility, with with nothing in my hands to bring anymore, nothing to endear me to him, Jesus met my desperate, childlike approach to him with just a loving embrace. Life only available in him to the place where now, yeah, 
There's times when I do still receive applause from people. There's times when I do at times still enjoy the high opinion of other people, but now I don't, I don't need those things like I did. I don't treasure them in the way that I used to, which means really I'm just free to enjoy them now in the way God intended. Because that's the thing, man. Think about the rich young ruler, right? He didn't just have great possessions. His great possessions had him. They were choking out his life in God, and, and really what Jesus was doing was trying to free him to life. Same thing with me. The praise and high opinion of other people was choking out my life, and, and in order to free me in his mercy, Jesus called me to lay those things down and follow him. That's just one example. That's an example of what this could look like That's from my own experience. What about for you? What could, what could this look like in your life? What would it look like to approach Jesus in this way yourself? Like even as I've been talking this morning, what, what treasures have you already been sensing Jesus fixing his gaze on in your life? Or what riches, or at least what's riches to you? Do you hear Jesus calling, saying, if you would be perfect, if you would have treasure in heaven, if you would enter into life, leave that behind and follow me. For some of you, as I've already said, you're going to need the Spirit's help to even acknowledge, like to even see that that's what you're doing, that that's what you're actually treasuring above God. My guess is that's where a lot of us are this morning. A lot of times we don't see it. And a lot of times it's because the thing we're treasuring, they're good things. Uh, they're not bad things in and of themselves, but we're, we are treasuring them. And a lot of times the only way we know we're treasuring them is because Jesus points at them and tells us to lay it down. Then all of a sudden, the grip response comes in. So a lot of us are going to need the Spirit's help just to identify and acknowledge, this is what I'm treasuring. This is what, these are my riches. And then for others, when you do see it, if, if you kind of already have a sense of what it is, you'll need the Spirit's help to see the treasure that Jesus offers you as truly being of more value than whatever that thing is you're presently treasuring. And for all of us, what I pray will help you to truly transition your approach from the one of the ruler to the one of a child is in seeing Jesus, uh, rich beyond any of our imaginations, willingly selling all that he had, willingly laying down all the glory and the riches of heaven, as Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 8, so that by his poverty we might become rich. He actually followed through on what he had called the rich young ruler to for all of our sakes. So when we see that in response, then like Paul, we too might be able to truly say from our heart, whatever gain I had, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may be gain, gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, it depends on faith. We'll never do this without the Spirit's help. So I want to take a few moments now in silence to just listen to the Spirit speak, however it is that he wants to apply any of this to you specifically right now. Let's, let's seek him together, and then in a minute we'll come together and take the Lord's Supper together.